0: Hello, I'm Ariel
1: Kroon. And I'm Christina De La Rocha. Welcome to Season 3 of Solar Punk Presents. The podcast introducing you to the people working today to create a
0: future we'd like to live in. Because... If Solar Punk has a genre of fiction, dreams
1: about the just and sustainable world we'd like to live in in the future... Solarpunk is a movement, rolls up its sleeves, and gets down to the business of bringing it about in the present. Welcome to Solarpunk Presence Season 3, Episode 6, in which Ariel talks to Dr. Jordan Kinder about petroturfing. By this, he means the establishment of fake grassroots support for oil extraction in Canada, and the false portrayal of the fossil fuel industry in Canada, as the underdog in need of protection. But before we continue, I'd like to interrupt myself to say, I hope you've been enjoying our podcasts. We put a lot of work into them to make them interesting for you, but we could use your support. Join our Patreon at www.patreon.com backslash solarpunkpresence for a few dollars a month for early access to episodes and bonus content. That would really, really help us out or recommend us to a friend, or write us a review. All of that will help us grow our audience and keep creating great interviews and discussions for you to listen to. Thanks, and now for this week's episode.
0: Our guest this week is Jordan Kinder, postdoctoral fellow in environmental humanities at the Mahindra Humanities Center at Harvard University. Jordan and I were actually in grad school together, although it was a few—I was a few years behind Jordan's cohort. But we worked together a few years back as research assistants on a project to do with energy transition. And I'm very glad to be catching up with him this episode. So, Jordan, thank you so much for agreeing to talk with me today.
2: Uh, Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here and talk about my work.
0: So, first, could you sort of introduce yourself? Maybe say a bit about who you are and what you do and what you're interested in. Uh,
2: I work on kind of generally what's called the cultural politics of energy, media, infrastructure, uh, and environment. This has led me to study a sort of variety of things, but uh, in particular, what's called the pro-oil movement uh, in Canada. And I've been looking at over the past kind of 10 years or so, how this movement took shape over social media, and use social media as a kind of way of legitimating itself as a popular uh, movement of sorts. Um, And so I just finished a book project on that uh, that should come out in spring 2024 for maybe a little more about me too. uh, I grew up in Northern British Columbia uh, in a town called Prince George. Uh, I worked at a gas station for like five years as a teenager that my dad managed. And I think this is a pretty instrumental uh, moment in my life to kind of get to get perspectives on the ways that sort of oil undergirds sort of social life. Of course, I didn't really realize that was happening at the time, but looking back, that's very sort of important experiences for me to be able to approach these subjects with, with some kind of level of relationality rather than maybe like a cold uh, academic distance that we're pretty often expected to have. I should probably also add uh, I'm a citizen of the Métis nation of Alberta, not um, sort of, familially associated with Alberta, but my family's from, on that side is from uh, southern Saskatchewan. But when I pursued sort of citizenship, I was in Alberta at the time. Um, And that's, that's how, that's how these sorts of uh, distribution of of Métis citizenship is uh, sort of governed post, uh, what is it, section uh, 35 agreements of the constitution. So.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, I wanted to ask you a bit more about the, the book that you just finished working on like last week, I read is about energy imaginaries in the Canadian media. Could you give us an elevator pitch for the book or elaborate on that a bit?
2: I generally work on kind of energy imaginaries in Canada, and this book would be about a very sort of specific version of that. And that is the one that's sort of tied to pro-extraction and pro-oil views. The book itself is called petro Refining Canadian Oil in the Age of Social Media. Mm-hmm. And that Pithy title uh, has the kind of keyword for the for the entire book in it, petroturfing, which is a sort of refiguration of the notion of astroturfing, which is a commonly or sometimes, I guess, less commonly known form of advertising that took shape in the mid 20th century, where sort of corporations were creating front groups to create sort of perceived grassroots campaigns around things like uh, smokers rights or pro resource extraction groups like uh, Coke Industries, for example, major oil company is documented for doing this sort of thing. I wanted to kind of come up with a different vocabulary for that to describe a phenomenon that happened and is sort of currently unfolding in Canada, mm-hmm. which is a uh, sort of handful of uh, groups sort of trying to refigure our relationship to oil and Canadian oil in particular. And what what their sort of bit is, is to suggest that Canadian oil is under threat by dominant, progressive, leftist interest groups and uh, people. And second, that as a result, there needs to be a sort of grassroots movement in support of the Canadian oil industry. What's interesting to me in that is two things. One is that it's sort of creating these conditions to suggest that environmentalism or or even indigenous activism is somehow wrapped up in kind of elite positioning that's separate from working class interests of any sort. And two, that the oil and gas industry isn't one of the most dominant uh, industries in Canada. This is where the kind of artificiality language is coming out in that notion of petroturfing, which is that the entire premise of creating a grassroots movement to support something that's already dominant is a kind of false positioning in the first place. Uh, the book is tracking the emergence of this phenomenon, starting with a book called Ethical Oil that was written by the far right media figure and former lawyer and lobbyist Ezra Levant, who uh, listeners might be familiar with, particularly, I think, with his relationship to Rebel Media, which is uh, a right wing news organization. He's a he's a co-founder of that. And so he wrote a book in 2010 called Ethical Oil that really kind of creates the case for the suggestion that Canadian oil is somehow more ethical than, say, oil produced in Saudi Arabia or what he understands as sort of conflict countries. Canada, as he says, is one of the few sort of liberal democracies that's producing oil at any scale like this. And so because of this, the oil produced in Canada is infused with these tendencies And that's really where the kind of energy imaginaries angle and why somebody who does sort of media and cultural studies would be interested in this in the first place is there's a kind of cultural politics being generated around the substance itself in this framing. Attached to this book launch was a multimedia campaign that was sort of framed as a grassroots initiative. And this was 2011, so a bit before before social media as we kind of understand it today was really understood to be social media platforms were less integrated we did have youtube we did have twitter we did have facebook um, but they weren't sort of really collectively understood as social media as such this ethical oil organization was using these platforms uh, to circulate these narratives that are in the book there was kind of a formal apparatus of this organization it had a director a few of them over the the years that it was active a couple of years into this, more groups sprung up. And so I have about five or six that I look at throughout the book and track them from sort of like when ethical oil started, 2010 and 11, up to uh, 2020. And I was mainly really interested in ethical oil as a kind of extreme case of greenwashing. But the more I followed it, more groups came out and actually some, some sort of traction of these narratives took place. So you would see in CBC or other news media that attempt to kind of have a balanced view of issues. They would include the voices from some of these organizations alongside Indigenous protesters or environmentalist protesters. And so you could kind of see these groups sort of influencing the larger discussion in a way. And that that's only sort of become more prominent into the present. And that's sort of how the book tracks this and specifically looks at what kinds of Uh, energy imaginaries are being supported and generated. And those are generally attaching positive social, economic, and uh, ecological aspects to Canadian oil. And so the the book really tracks the way way that those kind of three domains are um, circulated and supported through memes and other kinds of social media posts.
0: So as I understand it sort of the energy imaginary would be sort of made up of all of these narratives that are telling us what to think basically about the way that oil and gas is um sort of represented in Canada.
2: Exactly, exactly. And so it is to say that there's really sort of explicit narratives being attached to Canadian oil as a substance and also then its infrastructures. So in the book it it's mainly around pipelines because The sort of past decade has been um, many sort of disputes over a handful of major pipelines, none of which seem to be moving forward aside from one, the Trans Mountain expansion. But I really look at four that keep kind of propping up, and that's the Trans Mountain expansion pipeline, the Northern Gateway uh, pipeline, Eastern XL, uh, and the Energy East. And so most of those are, are canceled as far as pipelines can be canceled, but the Trans Mountain expansion is still. Um, moving with full force, and so the suggestion in the book is that because there's this discrepancy between the way that these groups are suggesting that the oil and gas industry is some kind of underdog force, despite the fact that production in the oil sands has only ever increased, mm. aside from a little blip in 2019 or so, basically every year is a record-breaking year. Mm. Um, this sort of premise of of marginalization is is a, is a fiction. But it's powerful given the kinds of more pronounced kind of public debates that are happening about transition and just transition and so on. And so, one of the claims that I make in the book is that while production is consistently going up, these groups are really trying to kind of saturate the media environment so that if any policies come in that actually do threaten uh, production uh, with any sort of serious potentiality, there's a kind of storehouse of energy imaginaries to draw upon that are already sort of in the public sphere
0: so and then the media becomes a sort of repository for all of these different narratives that can be brought out whenever there is a need for it i guess
2: and you do see that need coming up um the russian invasion of ukraine for example is a, is a good example of this happening because one of the first things that was sort of Discussed in Canadian media, and particularly a piece in the Globe and Mail, was an op-ed titled, The World Needs More Canadian Oil. And another sort of point is one of the first set of tweets that uh, then the Premier of Alberta, Jason Kenney, put out in response to to the invasion and war was that we need to put sanctions on Russia and we need to increase Canadian oil. So he was saying that as he was offering his kind of condolences and 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 concern for the war, but all in this sort of same breath, that's the case when these kinds of narratives about social license just suddenly become necessary to, to bring out and easily brought out. And so in that whole discussion, there was a conversation about reviving the Energy East Pipeline, for example. Um, right. That's sort of seriously on the table of discussion in the context of of increasing uh, Canadian oil on the world market but in particular to Europe and that because that would end up being sort of shipped out of the the eastern coast that's an example of how this this kind uh, of uh, yeah storehouse could operate
0: yeah that makes a lot of sense um especially given that this whole idea of ethical oil seems to be sourced in um, the values of of liberal democracy and then If you've got, you know, say the war in Ukraine and you've got Russia as the fascist boogeyman. And so that oil is not ethical as opposed to the ethicality, quote unquote, of Canadian oil. Uh, Never mind all of the land destruction that's happening because of it.
2: This is it. Once you once you poke a bit at the actual kind of premises of the ethical oil argument, it falls apart relatively quickly but there's there there's powerful elements to it that that I think uh, shouldn't be taken for granted. When I started doing this work, actually, I think quite a few other sort of academics and people in in circles that I was in, uh, especially when you're sort of a junior scholar finding your way seemed to think that it was a, a, a sort of not a worthwhile endeavor to be spending a lot of time reading a book like Ethical Oil, because it's sort of an easy target to 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 pick at in, in terms of whatever argument it's making. But the reality was, is what and, and what I'm doing in this book isn't picking apart the arguments themselves, but rather looking at, at looking at the core of it and seeing seeing what is powerful about that and what what kinds of energy imaginaries are being constructed and circulated through this, not to simply debate the merits of the ethical oil argument, but rather to think seriously about the power that these arguments might have in, in shaping, yeah, like a collective energy imaginary, which they seem to, be, seem to be doing in a way that I don't think people expected who, who were aware of this phenomenon before it mm-hmm. really uh, gained steam.
0: That resonates with me a lot, actually, like as a junior scholar who was studying, you know, science fiction, it was like, well, these books might not be great. They're, you know, like popular for a reason. This ethical oil book got really popular for a reason. What is it that draws people to those kinds of narratives? And what do these narratives do, that may be a narrative that like, hey, Canadian oil is actively instro- destroying the environment and uh, trampling all over, you know, people's rights and stuff like that. Like, what is it about that narrative full of facts that is not quite having as much traction as the you know ethical oil narrative
2: the reason ethical oil started was as a response to the dirty oil campaigns that mm-hmm. were occurring in like the mid 2000s and were pretty effective so greenpeace and and many other organizations were behind this which it was drawing attention to the realities of oil sands production which is that it uses vast amounts of resources and inputs to up to be upgraded into what can resemble conventional oil on the flip side it produces these waste byproducts that we don't know how to treat and th- those turn into tailings ponds and so between those two things the oil sands are considered to be one of the most polluting industrial projects on the planet and so that that's what these groups were drawing attention to with the kind of moniker of dirty oil That's an energy imaginary, too, right? It's doing a similar structural move uh, as ethical oil ends up doing. And so you end up in this conflictual zone that in the book I call oil culture wars, because these groups, as I don't think I mentioned earlier, are sort of wrapped up in the right wing media ecosystem, as sort of even its origins with a figure like Ezra Levant show. It's a kind of culture war that's occurring facts and, and sort of energy imaginaries are battling it out to see which one reigns supreme. And one of the points I make in the book is that I think that that's kind of a losing battle. The dirty oil argument might not have been the best strategy to go with in the first place, in that it kind of breeds the possibility for this defensive position around ethics. and, and right. So w- whether whether everyone will agree with me on that, we'll see. My peer reviewers had a bit of Push back against some of that in the sense that it might be construed as taking the sort of petro turfing project at its word in in terms of its own origins and kind of reifying its conditions. But I don't I don't really think that's quite the case. And I do think that some massive NGOs like Greenpeace deserve some criticism in in some capacity for potentially sort of short sighted uh, ways of of generating energy imaginaries like that. If Canadian oil is particularly dirty oil, that means we might have clean oil somewhere else. Uh, You know, the kind of this whole set of signifiers comes into play here that are implicated in calling Canadian oil specifically dirty.
0: I'm fascinated by the fact that this ethical oil campaign, it's not talking at all about the environment. It's not talking at all about um, all these other issues that the dirty oil campaign was calling out, because it's focusing specifically It seems like to me that it's focusing specifically on these sort of like political values. Uh, And that is within the realm of ethics, whereas the environment falls outside of the realm of ethics.
2: I think that is the kind of fundamental premise of it is a kind of really specific version of ethics being deployed. But I will say that it, it selectively raises issues around the environment insofar as it points to the kind of regulatory apparatus that exists in Canada as a good as a good example of environmentally responsibly extracting oil when compared again to these sort of conflict zones or conflict uh, conflict oil producers. And this is done by gesturing to reclamation projects and then necessity for oil companies to sign leases that say they'll return the land back to the state in the same condition that they got it in which is essentially the reclamation clause. They haven't really done that. There's one example of that called Gateway Hill. It represents something like 0.1% of all affected land. And that percentage is probably even a little smaller now uh, compared to the last time I looked at that statistic. But uh, it points to that. And then it also then just points to the general environmental regulation apparatus as As having enough checks and balances to consider the oil to be produced in a more environmentally sound way than places that might not have those uh, regulatory apparatuses. Of course, on the flip side, a lot of the other groups that I'm looking at throughout the book are quick to, to criticize the sort of liberal establishment, to criticize environmental regulations to a certain capacity. So it, it does two things for them. It allows them to have a target to critique, but then also allows them to have a premise to circulate this whole position on. It does the same thing in relation to gender politics. In fact, gender was really the kind of first entry point of the ethical oil campaign as it oh, compared absolutely. the way that women are treated in the West versus the way that women are treated in Middle Eastern countries specifically. Mm-hmm. They, had a, they had an advertisement that they aired on the Oprah Winfrey Network in Canada, comparing, yeah, the way that women are treated in Canada versus uh, Sudan, I think, was specifically the country that was called out in the advertisement. But that was kind of one of the first premises in which this narrative was being circulated.
0: Interesting.
2: Yeah, the, the book is kind of mapping these registers in which these narratives come out, and particularly looking at the conditions of social media that allow for the kind of self-presentation of a grassroots positioning where that may not be the truth. The deployment of the term astroturfing in general usually refers to groups that have been, um, their financing has been shown to be directly related to industry or a company. And it's not the case that I know this about the groups that I'm looking at. And so that's also why I sort of position this new term of petroturfing is to really to think less about where the funding is coming from, but more about how Dominant industry narratives are repackaged to be marginal and underdog positioning, and sort of countercultural in a way to to frame sort of like a certain kind of liberal environmentalism as the dominant view uh, in a way that doesn't really pan out. And so, this kind of fiction is is really the basis for that that vocabulary. I will say one one of the groups I looked at, it, at some investigative journalists have like found payments from oil and gas companies to them, but. There's not really enough evidence for me to make that claim with any, with any certainty, lest I get charged with libel or something like that. I don't know. Right. They would have to prove that they don't, which would be an interesting, an interesting position to be in, actually. (laughs) (laughs) So I I will say the the groups, the main groups that I'm looking at. There's a few of them. So one is called Canada Action, and it was started by a real estate agent in Calgary. Mm -hmm. Ethical Oil obviously was related to Ezra Levant, but was sort of started as a splinter multimedia campaign from that. There's mm-hmm. another one called Oil Sand Strong, and that was started by uh, a guy who runs an advertising company in Fort McMurray, who you know, clearly has contracts from oil and gas companies at some point in his portfolio and other businesses around Fort McMurray and is deeply invested in uh, the oil industry, as would be somebody working in real estate in Calgary, right? So right. There, there may not be these immediate connections to you know getting paid by Suncor or something like that. But there's a there's a deep sort of personal financial investment in the state of a prospering fossil economy in Alberta. Uh and then a couple of the others that I look at are actually ones tied to lobbying groups um, that are sort of there, like grassroots branch, one called oil respect, and another one called Canada's Energy Citizens, which is a Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers campaign. The last one I uh I I recall off the top of my head that I that I look at is one. british columbia called british columbians for international prosperity or something like that they pulled all their content content from the internet since like 2017 but were active around that same time as ethical oil in particular when the northern gateway pipeline was being sort of most aggressively pursued before it was cancelled and that group was ran by like a former Oil and gas manager and lobbyist, or something like that, like very direct connection. So, very tenuous claims about a distance from industry that are sort of easy to to poke at and and see and see where the kind of vested interests in supporting this industry are. And uh, as a sort of final point to to this part of our conversation, I think it is important to keep saying it's about supporting the industry. Every now and then, the the workers themselves will will show up in the way that those gestures work but it is really more concerned about the abstract kind of character of the industry rather than actually the people who are working in it. Um, That that bifurcation is really important to identify because the cultural work that these groups are doing is by sort of aligning or creating an alignment between the industry interests and the workers' interests, which aren't always the same, Mm. but it's sort of collapsing the two of those as if they were Part of my work in the book is to kind of disentangle that and suggest that this is part of the, part of the ideological project of these groups is to flatten those interests together and to separate the possibility of any kind of, uh, working class alliance between, say, environmentalists, indigenous groups and workers, which would be a really amazing coalition to get together. And of course, uh, probably one of the most frightening to the, the industry itself. And so keeping those separate is a really productive situation for them to nurture.
0: I was going to ask you sort of where does do the workers sort of come into this entire narrative? Do we see them buying into these sort of narratives of, oh, no, we're under attack? Or are they a little bit more ambivalent and critical of this to your knowledge?
2: I would say, and so, yeah, it is just to my knowledge because it isn't, I look more at the messaging and circulation rather than this kind of more sort of like the populist element of it, I guess you could say. But I do, after having spent so much time with it, I do have some inclinations. And that is that the workers generally do believe that they are under threat by protesters or those who support transition. Just Mm -hmm. transition, especially right now, as it's kind of that language is entering into more sort of mainstream political discourse is essentially being becoming a scapegoat of a certain kind within those circles and being construed as a threat to livelihood and employment. To put yourself in the shoes of, of workers, it actually makes sense to understand it that way. The fossil economy is not particularly kind to the working class. The boom and bust cycle is not a sustainable one for sort of human economic life in a way, I think. And so when you have... Explanations for that that suggest that this is because of you know an environmentalist elite that might be legible to you in that capacity, and it makes sense that you think that maybe you lost your job because of this, um, rather than you lost your job because your industry actually doesn't really care about you. Is is you know this is sort of a, a bit of a a bit of something I meditate on a little in the book is kind of like oil itself gets mythologized as a source of wealth for the working class who work in oil and gas not their own labor despite the fact that it is their labor that's producing that wealth and and that their industry really doesn't have their back in that way. And so when when you do get explanations for how that works, they can be seductive and tempting, I think. And that's not to suggest that they're gullible. I think that the narratives being circulated are powerful ones. There's a reason that these coalitions that I mentioned earlier aren't happening. And and these kinds of suggestions that let's say those working for transition just transition don't care about development and don't care about people's livelihoods this this is it's a compelling narrative it's one of the most important ones to challenge for us working in these fields and i think even the even just transition as a qualified version of transition already started to do that but as you can see it's already then being undermined and and sort of depoliticized in a way that the
0: way that I encountered the the phrase just transition was this emphasis like this is on workers first you know we're talking about a just transition that is inclusive of everybody and really sort of looks into all these economic issues that are being faced by the working class and the way that we transition to a new you know energy paradigm it has to be dictated by the people, and it has to be good for the people as well. So it's so interesting to me to realize that over the past little while, this has been so politicized and sort of co-opted into that petro turfing narrative.
2: Yeah, it is. It's fascinating, and and very. It was very quick for that to happen. Actually, I, I would assume it's when it started to enter actual kind of like what's the word, like conventional political discourse, because the way we would have encountered it, like, and by we, I mean you and I, quite literally, is through Jeff Powers and the research work we were doing at Alberta, which is a more academic environment, Mm -hmm. sort of encountering, encountering and developing these vocabularies. And then those types of vocabularies and frameworks then start to influence more policy level discussions. And I think once it Once it got into the policy level is when it was latched onto by these groups. That's actually where my book ends is is discussing a meme produced by Olsand Strong that questions whether the just transition is an existential threat to Alberta. So this is kind of how the the framing is being uh, functioned uh, and circulated.
1: But yeah.
0: Yeah. Just reminiscent of, you know, Jason Kenney's war room. Right. To. Mm -hmm. To you know combat all these supposedly foreign environmentalist liberal threats to the sort of like existence of Canadian oil and gas specifically Alberta oil and gas but then also i guess Canadian political democracy Canadian liberal democracy kind of at that higher level
2: separate from the war room but as part of the his early efforts in office was the anti-Alberta energy campaign inquiry also, which you may recall, which was a a formal inquiry into the nature and character and quantity of, of foreign funding influencing environmentalist movements and organizations in Canada. And I think that went over not quite a year, maybe the whole thing took a year and there was like eight months of the Reports coming, commissioned reports coming out, and and interpretation of evidence and stuff by the commissioner. I read all of it. I read the the commissioned reports and the final like six hundred page report. The conclusions by the end of it were sort of yes, there's some foreign funding. No, it's not particularly excessive or unique to environmentalist organizations. It's kind of common for Canadian organizations to get funding from U.S. partnerships and so on and so forth. And so it was really kind of like. A drum up as if this is going to be a massive reveal. And then the conclusion is that it's not really that big of a deal. But I do think the whole process of doing the inquiry was the point. It wasn't really about what the results were going to be. It was to create this kind of like fervor around the possibility of there being this kind of nefarious foreign acting in the environmentalist organizing. And the commissioned reports were really actually quite excessive in their claims as well. It was only the final commissioner who kind of lessened the claims and said there wasn't really enough evidence of of what was being sort of accused in a certain capacity. That said, there is a set of recommendations at the end. And this is what's really important for me. And what I was looking at is and one of the last recommendations is that there needs to be more resources put into branding Canadian oil better. Basically, my read on that is that the inquiry then kind of creates conditions for policy to be geared towards funding Even some of the groups that I'm looking at potentially in the future under that metric of uh, recommendation that's been done in a formal capacity. We'll see how that plays out. But it's that seems to me to be the future of these kinds of things is that they're going to be kind of somehow sort of state funded within Alberta, Mm -hmm. like the war room itself, which is a version of that. It's a version of even some of the things that I'm looking at. If not a slightly more innocuous version to a certain degree, but it, it is certainly using the same kind of principles and motivations as what I've been calling Petroturfing.
0: Okay, it seems like there's this narrative of being under attack, but then also this narrative relies upon um, there being a previous narrative of sort of a justified attack, and so that so they can rest in their victimhood?
2: Yeah, that that would be one one way of putting it, I think. And, And again, what's interesting to me is to look at the actual, the kind of material political economy level next to the discursive one. The discursive one up here is saying, we're under attack. Look, read the news. There's environmentalists everywhere who don't want oil anymore. The material political economic side is just rising up. More production, more production, more production. So this Friction or sort of like uh sort of separated condition to me is the pre is, is actually what shows how how much of an issue and how how sort of maybe even problematic we might say the framing of kind of marginalization and threat even is in the first place. How can an industry be under threat that is has like the most lobbying power in Canada next to banks, uh, is continually breaking production records, gets massive amounts of subsidies got a pipeline bought out by supposedly the most environmentalist prime minister we've ever had, right? It just doesn't make sense until you see it as a kind of cultural project that's potentially planting seeds for a a future condition that might be different. When we actually have a, a prime minister or leader or somebody that is seriously thinking about putting caps on production or, you know, these kinds of hard measures, then those kind of Uh, Cultural narratives can be capped into to do a certain kind of uh, work that could be pretty effective. I think that that's really the point of the book. Like, I'm actually pretty tired of looking at this stuff, as you might imagine. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, The point of the book is to, to start this conversation and have a kind of archive and mapping of what has happened over the past decade as a resource for what, what is going to happen next. Because I'll probably be kind of walking away from looking at this stuff for a bit and working more on. I have a historical project that I'm going to look at, which will be a bit easier on me.
0: Yeah, taking a bit of a break from <laughs> yeah. all that. Yeah, I
2: using similar kind of approaches and frameworks, but yeah, a historical project on the Mackenzie Valley Pipeline, which which was never built, and so there's this nice kind of, this happened, this didn't happen in the set period of time that I can look at. Right there,
0: yeah. <laughs> all <throughout laughs> university. There,
2: there won't be a there won't be a convoy about it.
0: <laughs> um, I think that your book is really important in that it sort of allows us to distance ourselves from these narratives and look at them critically as being narratives. I guess to use a metaphor, taking the goldfish out of the pond and saying, look, there is the pond. (laughs) Now, what are you going to do about the pond? Let's think critically about this pond now that you can actually see it.
2: I think that's a great metaphor because one of the things that I think happens in in this kind of right-wing project that I'm looking at is a certain kind of like decontextualization of, of types of knowledge and representation. And so you see, you see feminism being deployed for supporting oil and gas, for example, uh, in the case of that, that advertisement on the Oprah, Oprah Winfrey network. And, and so what I'm kind of doing is sort of strategically recontextualizing some of these, some of these things into the actual kind of, material and discursive environments that they're coming out of for people who really aren't tapped into energy politics that don't have this kind of academic background that you and I share in relation to kind of petrocultures cultures and energy humanities and and so really important and useful approaches that you really can't expect uh, people to you know have at their disposal um, I think that's one of the benefits that we can share as academics is that we actually have gotten time uh, and resources to some degree uh, and varying degrees to pursue topics that aren't necessarily like profitable enterprises or anything like that. We can actually spend time with this material and communicate uh, results and sort of important insights this way. And so I, I hope the book does that. I think you show these, these sorts of things I look at to people and they're sort of brushed off as kind of inconsequential and silly, right. or they're taken seriously, but not really understood in, a, in the larger environment in which they're operating out of. So there's a handful of responses that, that can come out of that. And I've been told that it's a public service of some sort. Uh, it's hard to tell like 10 years in to looking at this stuff, but yeah. So I think it's, it's valuable. Like, to it's deal. like tracking this and spending time with this really toxic stuff. So other people don't have to as much or something.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think it's really valuable to show the context in which this is happening, right? It's not like, well, no, these aren't isolated incidents, but part of a larger confluence of these narratives that have been going on for so many different years and are now influencing so many different projects and sectors of society in these certain ways so that we're all thinking certain ways. I mean, I will watch on YouTube these sort of green solutions in Canada and, you know, environment Canada and, oh, I don't know, like living in tiny houses off grid, that kind of stuff. Right. And I'm, I'm just looking to turn my brain off and maybe look at some like hopeful narratives of alternatives. And the ad that I am served is on behalf of the Alberta oil and gas or Canadian. Association of, of uh petroleum producers um showing me these lovely green vistas of reclaimed, you know, woodlands and saying that um, you know, like Canadian oil, if you just look a little bit closer, you can see that it's really invested in all these like greener, cleaner futures. That ad has come up quite a few times now already. And I'm able to sort of look at it skeptically and say, I've never seen a place like that. I'm not really sure what it is trying to tell me. But if I wasn't able to sort of put it in that context, that larger context, I don't know if I would think about it quite so critically.
2: Those ads are interesting, especially talking about the reclamation projects, which I'd brought up earlier in that they just haven't really sorted out the process for reclamation to scale in any capacity. And so the, the actual projects themselves that do look like the way that you saw in these uh, ads they're sort of just they're sort of themselves being used as a promotional device to rationalize further resource extraction than they are actually any sort of scalar solution to the absolute destruction that's happening there mm-hmm. it's kind of fascinating to me how that works in in those areas and and i do think reclamation is probably going to be one of the most major points of contention if it isn't already in the near future as we sort of get into the sort of end stages of some of the legacy projects it's worth pointing out that in the oil sands they didn't really start until the late 60s 1967 and usually the projects run for i think between 40 and 60 years and so we're only really now at the point where some of those earlier projects are at the end of their life cycle and reckoning with the kind of limits of reclamation technology today. Uh, right. And, and, and that'll only then kind of continue into the future with projects that were started in the 80s and 90s and, and wow. so on. So, so yeah, not- the temporality is really kind of hard to grapple with, I would say.
0: In Solar Punk, we're thinking about temporalities, we're thinking about these cleaner and greener futures, but you know, it's more like, what do we do in the here and now that can help us sort of get there? So now that we have this knowledge and context for petroturfing and all those, all these energy imaginary narratives that are sort of influencing us, is there anything that we can do about it? So it seems like it's just this huge and untouchable sort of industry. What sort of the ways that we as sort of like just regular people can engage with it?
2: There's kind of two to at least two kind of dynamics here. One is the sort of more cynical dimension of realizing the kind of like vast material impacts of this industry and its kind of momentum that is very hard to disrupt considering those temporalities at work that I just mentioned. But part of it I think is nurturing different energy imaginaries. The book kind of ends with this uh sort of more speculative suggestion about thinking thinking not so much in terms of this kind of Reactionary dimension, whether it's thinking about dirty oil or ethical oil, and actually kind of moving beyond that kind of impasse that's produced by the two of those to think about how we might change our own relationship to oil, not in the sense of just saying we're done with it and keep it in the ground, because even if we do that, we'll still be sort of haunted by the legacies of it, whether it's in the atmosphere or in pollution and in plastics and so on and so forth. And so I really draw on. Uh, Zoe Todd's work if mm-hmm. you're familiar with that and if if listeners aren't uh, she has a great piece called fish kin and hope that kind of talks about approaching fossil fuels as kin and identifying that the problem is really not with fossil fuels themselves as a kind of substance mm-hmm. but with the way that we interact with it and and in that Zoe Todd's phrasing is that fossil fuels have been weaponized by industry in that Sort of extracting and burning process that we see in industrial economies. It sounds like an idealist solution in the sense that changing the way we kind of think about and relate to oil sounds kind of up in the air and abstract, but there's actually a kind of material dimension to it too, in that it's sort of asking us to reevaluate how, how we uh, engage with oil collectively in a certain way. Will that somehow create Uh, some kind of practical points for transitioning away from oil. Uh, I'm not so sure, but maybe there are uh, other avenues of kind of making demands to, I would say then on on the flip side, like helping to shape discourse in a certain way too. So there's this kind of material relationship, but also intervening when you can, when you see discussions about oil or fossil fuels getting into that zone of turfing, if you will, if you see this happening, uh, name it as such and don't really entertain it. I think this is this is the issue that's happening not just in the stuff that I'm looking at, but I think in kind of like right wing media spheres in general, which is this kind of constant push to debate and like have a have some kind of discussion which the premises are already fraught. They're not done in good faith and so on and so forth. So not engaging in those situations, I think is actually really important otherwise it's it's essentially creating fodder of a certain sort for those positions. One of the groups that uh in the u s that I look at that's ran by a guy named Alex uh, Epstein mm-hmm. he has formats to follow that he suggests and and adopts himself in how to convince people of your positioning and and these sorts of things like really structural debate tactics to kind of like strong arm people into into kind of accepting his positions and ways and so. I think it's worth not even having those debates in the first place, um, and recognizing when some when situations are productive to actually create the possibility for some kind of change and when they're not. that's very valuable, I think and also for if people that are listening are activists, it's also like a a mode of self care to make sure you don't wear yourself out by constantly engaging in bad faith right. conversations. so those would be maybe like the three the three things I would suggest, the more kind of abstract. Uh, we need to kind of like reconfigure our relationship to fossil fuels in a way that isn't just entirely about keeping them in the ground. But maybe that is part of it. My my read on that is that like something like the oil sands, that's somewhere we can keep it in the ground. We don't need to rely on the oil sands for making plastics and stuff like that, that are we need for medicine and these kinds of things. And then second, yeah, calling out these kinds of like false narratives, I guess, and false premises mm. of energy imaginaries. And third, not engaging in situations that aren't actually productive ones. I, and maybe also things like divestment and, and pushing for divestment and stuff like that. But that's like a whole separate conversation.
0: No, that, that third one, knowing when not to engage, you know, that's Definitely something I would like to take to heart. <laughs> and yeah. you're right; it's an it's an act of of self care, really, to know when the only way to win is not to play.
2: <laughs> yes, yeah. I mean, I would say that that is something that I've learned looking at the the material that I've been looking at over the last ten years, and is it's not uh, it's not productive.
0: Well, thanks so much for discussing all of this with me today, Jordan.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me.
1: Thank you for listening to Solar Funk Presence, a podcast hosted and produced by Ariel Kroon and Christina Della Rocha.
0: The audio for this episode was recorded in part on the traditional
1: territory of the neutral Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe peoples. And in Germany. The opening and closing music for this podcast is Water Cooler Gang by Monkey Warhol, available for use under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, join our Patreon at www.patreon.com/solarpunkpresence or share the podcast with
0: friends, family, and people you know who might be interested in our guests and what we have to say. We'd also love it if you could write us a nice review on your podcatcher of choice because every review bumps us higher in the algorithm's priority so we
1: can reach more listeners. Until the next episode, keep dreaming and keep up the good work.